If you have your Bible with you, find our Old Testament reading, 1 Samuel chapters 23 and 24. Thanks, Joetta. That was remarkable. 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 24. David is on the run. He's a fugitive, and he's already been a fugitive for some time. He's, he's being hunted and hated like a wild animal by Saul and his elite troops. And David's got men with him too, but they're not exactly elite troops. Um, the folks who gathered around David, look back one chapter. Look at chapter 22. Notice how it describes David's troops in chapter 22, verse 22. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, that's who came to David, right? So um, by the time we get to chapter 23, this um, group of uh, 400 or so, this ragtag group of malcontents has grown to even more malcontents. And now he's got about 600 of these rascals around him. And here they are, just imagine them skulking around the desert borders of Judah in the kind of inaccessible and untamed places. And here is King Saul, this tragic, tragic man. His once promising life has narrowed down to this murderous squint. We watch him chasing David. It's cat and mouse. The scriptures describe it as this deadly pursuit, hill by hill and cliff by cliff and rock by rock. And several times David is cornered. He's trapped in a city at one moment. He's trapped in a cave at another moment. He's trapped on a, in a part of a mountain. And Saul and his troops, they keep getting right up on him. And then David gets away. In chapter 23, notice what it says at the very end of verse 5. After saving the inhabitants of Kilah, David learns that these people he saved are going to betray him. Now that's awful. Don't read it so fast that you don't think of the moments you've been betrayed. Maybe by a spouse or a parent or a friend. David's just latest, I mean, he's just risked his life, saved them, and they're going to betray him. Betrayal is devastating. So this wilderness that David is running around in, it's more than physical. He's in a spiritual wilderness. Like Israel before him, and like Jesus after him. Three great wilderness stories in the Bible. You see, when you read the Bible over and over, you notice something. Not on your first reading or your second or even your tenth, but on your fiftieth reading, you begin to notice that these wilderness stories interpret each other. That to really understand what's going on with David, you've got to remember what went on with Israel when they were in the wilderness. And, and you've got to think about what went on with Jesus when he was in the wilderness. Each one of these three stories helps us understand the other one. And so we begin to see when Israel is in the wilderness, when David is in the wilderness, and when Jesus is in the wilderness, we are reading moments of intense temptation. The wilderness is the place of testing. 
It's the place of temptation. And what is the temptation that David is facing? Well, it is the most intense temptation. What what is it? What what temptation does he face? Look at David in the cave of En Gedi. On the surface, it's hilarious, right? There's David hiding for his life. Saul can never find him. The only time Saul finds him is when he goes to the restroom. And he doesn't even know that he's found him. And he doesn't have his army of elite troops with him. He doesn't even have his clothes on. He's doubly vulnerable, correct? Right? There's, there is Saul. And, and, and nature's called. He's found this nice, quiet, private place, he thinks. But there are 600 bitter, angry, malcontent, armed men right behind him. Saul removes his robes and squats down. So in verse Chapter 24, verse 4, the men of David said, the Lord has done this. Here is the day that the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now it's interesting. We have no record of God ever telling David that. So there goes David sneaking forward, taking his sword out, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't kill Saul. He just cuts off a corner of the robe. And then it says in verse 5, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you should read something like that and say, what in the world? Like, what's so bad about, I mean, of all the things that's been happening to David and David, David's doing all this stuff, why this sudden conscious? crippling conviction about the corner of a robe. And so you read the Bible like you read good literature and you think, where else has a robe shown up in 1 Samuel? When and what other moments has a robe been important to the plot? And you go back to chapter 15 and you see in verse 28 that when God was, was dealing with Saul through Samuel, he grabs at Samuel and tears the corner of his robe off. And Samuel looks at him and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. And then in chapter 18, verse 4, Saul's son, Jonathan, the crown prince, when he wants to say to David, God has chosen you, how does he do it? He gives David his robe. And then in chapter 20, verse 15, Jonathan begs David, do not ever cut off, same word, your steadfast love for my family. So when David cut the corner off of Saul's robe. It wasn't a just kind of trivial little thing. You don't get to interpret the word robe at this point in the literature as trivial because it's already been filled with meaning and it's already been filled with significance. David was making a point. He was symbolically tearing the kingdom from Saul. He was grabbing the kingdom. He was tearing the kingdom. Getting it for himself. So David is conscious stricken because while he resisted the temptation to kill Saul, he yielded for a moment to the temptation to grab the kingdom. And David in his heart knew that he shouldn't have done that. And like Satan whispering in Jesus' ear to take a shortcut, right? In Matthew's account of Jesus' wilderness temptation, we're supposed to read these together. We hear the Satan offering Jesus a shortcut. You can have the throne. You can grab the glory. 
Here's a shortcut. Here's a, here's a faster way. Here's a less painful way. You don't have to wait on God. You can get it yourself right now. Here's a way. And this way that I'm offering you avoids a lot of suffering. Here's a straight path to the throne and to glory that doesn't go through a wilderness of suffering and waiting. And so like Jesus... And like Israel in their own wilderness of suffering, David is faced with the prime temptation, the temptation of Adam, the fundamental soul-testing question. Will you seize the forbidden fruit and take a nice juicy bite for yourself? In that cave, David had the opportunity to skip his life of suffering and fast forward to the throne. And in the cave, David, like Jesus, is surrounded by companions encouraging him to take the easy road, right? We heard this in our gospel reading in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to 37. We saw Jesus in the wilderness. He's, he's, and he's, his companions come up to him and says, everyone back in Capernaum wants you to continue to be the local wonder worker. Come on back. Like, this is what you're here for. You can get it. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not time yet. I've got a much longer path to walk. And then in chapter 16 of Matthew, when Jesus began to teach his disciples that the road he had to walk had to go through Jerusalem. He had to suffer the crucifixion. If you've ever read the Bible before, when he tells him that, what does his close companion Peter say to him? No way! That's not the way. There's a better way. There's an easier way. There's a faster way. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, in these moments, Jesus is refusing the shortcut to the throne. Like David in the cave, these were his moments of great temptation. And it was a particular temptation. So David in the wilderness is learning how in the face of temptation to entrust himself to God. Isn't this what nations need by their leaders? Can't you see what God is doing in the future king's life? Look back at the beginning of chapter 23. Listen to verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kila and are robbing the threshing floor. How does David respond to the news that Israel's perennial enemies are ravaging this unprotected village on the border with their enemies? Look in verse 2, it says, Therefore David inquired of, if you've got a Bible, it says the Lord, and the word Lord there is written different most likely than any, all the other words in your Bible. It's probably in some small caps or italics or something like that. Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord, written weird again, said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kyla. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. Out here by ourselves in hiding, we're scared. Now we're going to run from avoiding one enemy right into the teeth of an entire nation? That's like... So David inquired of the Lord. Same thing again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kyla, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So in the midst of running for his life, experience the emotional hurricane of betrayal, David hears that the Philistines are plundering a Judean village, and even though he's surrounded by hundreds of malcontent, scared people, he prays. 
David is learning that he has direct access to Yahweh. If you have a Bible, do you see that word, Lord, in verse 2? It's formatted and all through there. Now, the reason it's like that is because a long time ago, a, a kind of a tradition happened where the name of God, Yahweh, whenever it was written in the, in the original Hebrew, that instead of translating it as Yahweh, which is what it literally is, they would translate it as the Lord as a way of honoring and respecting and having great awe before God. And most English translations today uh, carry on that tradition. And um, so that's unfortunate because you need to know this isn't a generic thing like um, there's a God, there's a divine higher power. This is more like, nope, not Zeus, nope, not Apollos, nope, not Aphrodite, nope, not Allah, nope, Yahweh, this particular God. He calls on God by name. Now, my point is that we need to pay attention to what to the formation that's occurring in David. We find him talking with God as if God is his friend, calling him by name. It happens again. So it happens there in verses 2 through 5, and then it happens again in verses 10 through 12. Look at verse 10. Then David said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in verse 11, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And in verse 12, Yahweh said to David. So David calls on God by name and he relies on him. In the midst of this extreme pressure, David is, is not portrayed as a man of action. In extreme danger, his life foreshadows the life of Jesus. Here is David in danger Not taking action, but going to prayer. He's learning to understand that his proper posture toward God is a posture of need. And that God is the source of life and hope. And in between these two crazy situations where we see David at prayer talking to the creator by name as if they are friends... In between those two, we have, Dave, we have Saul dealing with God. And it's different. You're supposed to, it's like a sandwich. In verses 2 through 5, you have David dealing with God. In verses 10 through 12, you have David with, dealing with God. And then in the middle of those two, we have Saul. And notice in verse 7, Saul's way of dealing with God is very different. Verse 7, now it was told Saul that David has come to Kilah. You should think, it was told David that the Philistines are, all right, so there's an enemy, and he finds out where he is. What did David do? Oh, Lord. He asked God, right? He talks to God. Now, what does Saul do? And Saul said, not Yahweh, but he uses the generic word God. God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that is gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. So here, Saul, he doesn't call God by name. He doesn't even call on God. He just talks about God in a, very, in a fairly generic way. Now, you, you're supposed to catch that. You're supposed to see David dealing with God, talking to him as a friend by name. And then here's Saul doing his kind of generic, like, just talk about God. And then here's David again, similar situation, talking to God by name. 
Can't, can't we see in Saul a form of civil religion that's quite prevalent in our society today? A way of turning God into a vague force. A way of going to church but not entering into a real, vibrant friendship, personal relationship with the God who has a name. A way of defining Christianity in terms of values. Whether it's liberty or freedom or love or peace or justice for the marginalized. It's a way of letting these values become the defining center. But in David, we see the full, robust revelation of the Bible that there is a particular God. The God revealed to us in Jesus Christ and he can be known personally. So what about you? Have you learned this lesson? Have you learned? Have you put into practice your incredible opportunity of direct access to the God who has a name? He is the one true God. Have you learned that this God, the only true God, Jesus Christ, not only can be known by you, but he knows you. Have you learned to seek him personally? Have you learned in extreme moments, instead of bolting out into action, to pray? Or do you just generically toss out these things about God, like God will take care of it? God will take care of me, or whatever your, you know, your phrases are. Have you learned to pray, to really pray? This is not about praying in a quiet garden before breakfast. This is prayer in the wild and fierce and disorienting wilderness when the temptations are fierce, when the possibilities of a shortcut are so brightly attractive and so deeply compelling. Are you developing the habit of seeking God's direction when the chips are down? It's in the wilderness of suffering and trials and temptation that David learns how to call on God. How to call on the one true God who is the source of life and love and freedom. But that's not all he learns. He also learns how to repent. Even the slightest act of symbolic rebellion. The cutting of the corner of the robe. This attack on the sign of Saul's position as king. Even this little thing grieves David. And he confesses it. And he repents of it. You see, David is being formed through temptation to put his faith in a, in a particular God who is a judge. He's learning to entrust himself to the Lord who will judge. David is learning because God will judge, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to return evil for evil. He can return good for evil. Why? Because it's just a good way to live? No. There's a particular reason why he can return good for evil. Because he believes God will judge. And only... Americans who aren't deeply suffering want a God of love devoid of judgment. Miroslav Volf, one of the great theologians in the world today, was, is, is, is a Serbian. And he said he believed 
that God had no wrath until he lived through the genocide. And then he found a God without wrath was an immoral monster. See, David can trust God to judge so he doesn't have to. That's what he says in his speech to Saul. God will judge between us. David foreshadows his greater son, Jesus. He entrusts himself to the Lord because he knows that the Lord will raise him in due time. He's learning how, in other words, he's learning how to make God a refuge. It's a very particular move. This move of, turn, of, of relating to God, not just as a friend, but this is another move. This is relating to God as a refuge. I love chapter 23, verse 25. When David was told that Saul knew where he was and was on his way to kill him, it says David went down to the rock. And look, by the way, if you write in your Bible, you should change the lowercase r to a capital R. And if you don't like writing in your Bible, there's your neighbor's Bible. Just reach over there. (laughs) And in verse 26, it says, This rock was the only thing between David and his enemy. This is when David learned how to sing. We know this because at the end of David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 22, as his life is ebbing away, he's singing. And you know what he's singing? Chapter 22 verse 1 of 2 Samuel. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my rock. Not that mountain that saved me down there. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And then in verse 32 of his deathbed song, he sings, For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? You see what David's done? He learned that in the wilderness. He learned when there was only a rock between him and Saul, he learned that God was his rock. He's learning to... He's learning how to relate to God as a refuge. He's learning how to take refuge in God. David started out running for his life. And at some point he found that the life he was running for, the name of that life was God, was Yahweh. God is my refuge. Yahweh himself is my rock. Now, have you learned this deep truth? This is one of the fundamental surprises in life. We start out being desperate in the wilderness of En Gedi, and before we know it, we are ecstatic in the wildness of God. Have you learned this? You can. When the odds were all stacked against him, David put into practice trusting in Yahweh to deliver him. What about you? What is your practice In these moments, the front of our worship God has a line from one of David's prayers, a prayer he prayed while hiding in that cave in Gedi. That's why it's on the front of your worship God. Oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. What does it mean to make God your refuge? What does this mean? It means we make the fundamental decision for Yahweh over and above anything and anyone else. And we do this over and over and over until it becomes our character. 
we make a fundamental decision for the Lord Jesus Christ above everyone and everything, and we do it over and over and over. In the wilderness, David developed the habit of turning his heart toward God. He learned that when faced with temptation, when overwhelmed by suffering, when faced with betrayal, he learned to humble himself before God. And in the words of Teresa of Lisieux, he learned to make himself little in the hands of God. See, he grew too big for his britches when he cut off the corner of Saul's britches. And he learned that the path of life is to be little. It's to grow small. As we watch David in the wilderness, we see that he is discovering true life through the narrow path of repentance, self-abandonment, and faith in the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's the path to life. Repentance, Self-abandonment and faith in the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Look, no matter your age, you can find yourself in the wilderness. Abandoned, betrayed, suffering in desolations of deep anxiety. And being offered the forbidden fruit of a quick way out. Children, teenagers. Adults, senior citizens, are you practicing the act of giving yourself to God? You will become most fully your truest self only when you abandon yourself to the only true God. And when we do this, God will receive us as his sons and daughters. As the new family he is creating in and for his only true son, Jesus Christ. And he will be a rock. He will be the rock between you and your enemies. Between you and your death. He will be a refuge in times of trouble. 